you're you're gonna be Uncle Lee. Uncle Lee? Mm-hmm. Wait, what? Why? Promise and I are pregnant. <gasps> <laughs> what the heck? Oh shit, dude. I was actually thinking about promise. I was wondering where the saga left off. Yeah, dude. Uh we are due in December, maybe January. So this is recent. Yeah, yeah, very recent. Sorry. Yes, we found out on Mother's Day. How secret is... <laughs> Damn, dude. Congratulations. Thank you. Wow. How do you... Okay, we got, let's, just, let's just be vulnerable. Let's, let's deep dive into it. How do you feel about this? You can be honest. Thank you. And you can stop recording if you also want to be more honest. <laughs> yeah. Um, what I what I feel is an entire range. It is all over the map. Um, the idea of being a father is very easy for me. Um, I wasn't surprised when she told me. Uh, I wasn't surprised at all. <laughs> um, but yet the reality of shepherding a soul and going through that journey of um, it's, it's now not just a continuous growth and expansion process for myself, but it's me and the concentric circle of, of us, right? Promise and I, which is always what comes first. I, I say source to me, to her, to then our kids, and then to our friends, our family, our teams, our community, you know, the rest of the world. And so it's a ripple effect from there. So it makes it very easy uh, to think that, well, that's constant, whatever source is, right? Um, yes. And then I'm fairly constant. So, <laughs> so then the next thing is how I show up. So, uh, for example, today doing yoga, we, we talked about the, is it the uh, taro taroteal field? Is that what you call it? Mm-hmm. The energetic fields that, you know, it comes up through us through our heart chakra and then goes back down through our feet and comes up and through us. And now, you know, we can actually measure these things with instruments, which is crazy. And so I think about that, you know, like we are, we are holistic beings. And so my role as a father, my role as a husband, as a leader, as, you know, a shepherd of my own soul and of all the souls that I get to interact with is all encompassing. And so that energy field is actually, um, you know, it's up there with the most important things that there are, which is the energy that I show up with and how, how I uh, am able to connect and understand and, you know, do the same, obviously first for myself. So I have energy to give, I have surplus to give and, uh, from there, it ripples to awesome people such as yourself. Oof. Damn, <laughs> dude. Wow. Very thoughtful. It's very thoughtful of you. Oh, my gosh. It was going to be a Tyler Jr., maybe, or a Tylerina. It's, it's Maverick or it's Tula. Maverick or Tula. Oh, I yep. love that. Maverick. Whoa. We're working on middle names and things of that nature. So I threw out the idea of Zen as a middle name, but 
Mavs and Drake, all single syllables, you know, it's kind of uh, <laughs> rolls off the tongue very quickly. Uh, I like it. So I, I, I'm out of curiosity. Anything. Would it, would the child take your last name? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Promise and I are going to get married. I'm designing oh. a ring right now. Oh, you guys are and, getting uh, married? Yeah, dude. This was, so what's really crazy about this is this is entirely in the vortex. When we rewind just over a year ago in mm. April, when you and I were talking on April 1st, and yes. it was about 10 days later that I actually told Promise about that experience that I saw our lives unfolding. Our, I saw our family, I saw our tribe, I saw you know this energetic state that I couldn't pinpoint in time, but it felt like a future time. And it was very Lion King-esque, you know? I was, I was here with my staff, right down, like holding the staff, like, you know, like Mufasa, and he's holding up Simba. And, you know, it, it felt very much like that. We actually watched Lion King not too long ago, and it, I mean, dude, I was crying like a little baby. Like a little freaking baby. <laughs> wow. That was like kind of at the core of it. And so what's really amazing here is that we predefined that we were going to spend the first year really diving deep with each other. Right. And so we were going to travel. We were going to, you know, do our, our different growth experiences. We were going to hang out with friends and all this awesome stuff. We were going to move to Tahoe. And literally all that came true. And we got pregnant plus or minus a week of that exact date. Wow. <laughs> Powerful intentioning there. Yeah. What, dude, what is your take on all this? Like it is, it is unfolding, um, you know, exactly by intention. But, you know, again, the, the human experience here is like, Sometimes it doesn't unfold the way that I want or, you know, something. For sure. You know what For I mean? Sure. Like, like the vortex was so strong. It was so powerful that this was inevitable and it was going to happen. Um, what's your take around all that? Well, just, just to follow up on our previous line of questioning, there, there was an episode not too long ago where things were on the edge of not going forward with promise. I remember you guys spent some time apart. Was that post-pregnancy before she found out? Or was that before she found out? Yeah, that gap is, um, you know, it's when we really started this podcast, right? This series and diving in and just hanging out with each other more frequently. Um, I, had, I had separated into a different property and um, we both did just a ton of introspection, a ton. And ultimately, um, you know, came back together. And that's, that's what I mean about like, everything happens the way that it's supposed to, right? In hindsight, we always look back. I, I always look back, we use I statements here. I always look back and I'm like, that makes perfect sense. Of course, that's how it happened, right? Even though when we're experiencing something, it might feel like the contrast in the moment, you know, um, we, we've gone through a lot together. We've gone through a lot together and it's been amazing i mean the way i defined it was felt like a decade in that first year and so yeah i mean of course there's areas where there were different you know trajectories but the vast majority was overlapped and in, in alignment and so you know when we focus on the areas where it's you know going different directions um, sometimes it's just language and it's actually it truly is alignment but there's just 
you know, disconnects in how that gets conveyed or presented. And other times there's, you know, philosophical or principled difference. And so I feel like uh, it's, at least for us, it's been um, more about languaging or style, but the values are in alignment completely. And because of that, it allows everything else to unfold, even though we have a lot of intensity, we're very intense people and, <laughs> you know, have a strong pull. So it's, it's been a fascinating experience to, um, you know, go through the emotions of what it's like to know that, you know, it's, it's beyond us. Like this is, is truly magical, you know, to think that a soul chooses its incarnation. Yeah. Um, I, I believe that. And so Definitely. Mav, I, I'm pretty convinced it's Mav. I think it's like over 90%, you know, odds, but it could be too late. It could be both. Maybe we got twins, but either way, I'm, I'm convinced that, you know, this, this soul said, Oh, I get it. Y'all laid the foundation that you need now. Right. So it doesn't mean that things are perfect, quote unquote, what is perfect, except something that can't improve. And so nothing is perfect through that lens, at least. And um, I, I believe that, you know, we, we choose to be in relationship. We choose to be loving. We choose to be supportive. We choose our emotional states. We choose how we want to be. And then also we have our default modes. We have our hard, hardwired and even genetic blueprints around, you know, what we're predisposed to, what our parents did growing up, you know, what yes. were their styles. And so, I mean, I, I just I feel incredibly blessed. I feel incredibly grateful. Um, we're going to take a, a road trip here, actually, just a couple of days. So we're going to be up in Portland. We'll be able to hang out with you and Mikhail. Yeah, I really got to meet Promise this time. Oh, yeah, dude. we'll be there for like a week. And we're taking my rig. I got a little uh, like trailer. It's an off-road trailer, just hooked up to the back. And so we already took it out, went to the edges of Yosemite um, two days ago. And I mean, it was crazy, man. Posted up on a beach and I mean, it felt like a gale force winds. I mean, it was probably only like 50 miles an hour, felt <laughs> like 80. And the whole thing was going like, I was like, when's it going to lift? Um, so at like 3.30 in the morning, we decided, okay, we've, both got maybe 15 or 20 minutes of total sleep over the course of four hours of attempting. And so we just threw in the chairs, made sure that all the camp stuff was, you know, set up like the stove was packed up and, you know, things weren't going to fall around and then just drive. And so we drove to Mono Lake and this lake has three times the density of salt as the ocean. Wow. So you can like just float easily. Right, I would think so. The Dead Sea is like 30 times apparently, I think, or no, it wasn't, it wasn't 10 times, but it's significantly more salinity. So I imagine you could, uh, but it's this really uh, interesting environment where it's kind of like in Yellowstone around geysers, there's a lot of like orange algaes and uh, different, you know, textures and like the, there's literally salt, like it's all over the rocks and they're saying that it's one of the most thriving habitats in the world. And I was looking around like, there's not a ton of animals here, right? But I imagine that, you know, like promises talking about birds and their salt licking and 
So there's migratory patterns, I imagine, that come through and, you know, and it supports the life or bone density or biodiversity of so many other creatures. It's a trippy place. Interesting. Yeah, please give me a heads up on when you guys will be in town and we'll, we'll plan a date. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it'll be, uh, we'll be leaving Thursday or Friday. Okay, good deal. So, yeah. Be here over the weekend. Be over the weekend and then probably through like Thursday. So it'll be a solid, it'll be a solid chunk. Well, we should give Grayson a heads up and maybe we can do the next uh, episode in person altogether. That sounds awesome. That'd be fun. Yeah, I would love to. Hell yeah, dude. Wow. What a trip, man. Woo. I just remember when our, cro- when our paths first crossed, you were just in the early stages of this unfolding. And then we just, yeah, touched base here and there. And then boom, you're a family man. <laughs> Ooh, Papa Drake. <laughs> Isn't that a trip? Like, it is. The idea of... The idea of being a dad is is really uh, simple in understanding, but it's mm. vast and deep in emotion. Oh yes, <laughs> uh, your whole life's gonna change the moment you hold that child physically for the first time. Yeah. All right, I got it. So I, you know what? We we let's. I know what the theme of this discussion is gonna be. It's gonna be about family. It's gonna be about children. It's gonna be about the future. If you're okay with mm-hmm. that, I'm just gonna ask you some questions. You've always been the questioner. But I think this time I'm going to question you and then just yeah. answer, just, just answer to whatever comes to your heart. So thank you. How does promise feel about all this? Uh, elated, ecstatic. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like Aww. this is, this is amazing. So we're, uh, we feel very, very blessed. So I loved how you had brought up earlier about how beyond our our own choices of what emotional state we want to be in. We also have biological impetuses that sort of pop in subconsciously, such as the things that tied from our nurture and nature when we were children. Mm. So I have to ask you, how has your relationship been with your parents? Yeah, great question. Wow. So um, my parents got divorced when I was six. I'm the last of four. And so my, my oldest brother is seven years older than me and then five years and then three years for my sister. And so I was really young at that point. I have some memories, but I don't have a lot of conscious memories. And uh, so I was primarily raised by my mom. And um, my dad is an engineer. He's a civil engineer. And oh, wow. my mom is a cheerleader. And <laughs> so I'm the product of an engineer and a cheerleader. I was the genius of my brother, Kevin. Uh, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, he said that I was like, oh, it makes so much sense, right? Being able to get analytical and technical, but not being driven by that, being driven by the emotion and, and really wanting to uh, connect and understand. So uh, I, you know, I went to counseling and stuff a lot as a kid and was diagnosed ask why? with ADHD. Okay. Um, well, I mean, you know, parents go through divorce and, and I actually, I didn't feel remorse. I didn't feel bad. I didn't feel like there wasn't guilt. There wasn't, you know, I, I felt like the counselors actually wanted me to feel that. Like they kept asking things and like pinpointing mm. things. And, well, you'll experience, you know, this or something like that. And I was like, 
no, no, no. I like at this point I was probably in middle school and I was like, I have two families now. I have a, a stepmom who's absolutely awesome and a, a soon to be stepdad at that point. It's absolutely awesome. And they all operate in different quadrants, right? So I got a lot of like kind of that tough love and discipline from my stepmom. She was an ER nurse for 40 plus years. And so she's like, oh, you cut yourself? Are you gonna die? No? Okay, you're good. <laughs> and then my stepdad, like he's all about hunting and fishing in the outdoors. And you know, he's, he's just like a, a man's man in that regard. And he's, he's the glue, the hub and spoke between so many of his friends and keeping all those communities together. And so, yeah, the, the way that I look at, at parenting and the way that I was raised, um, I was raised with a bias towards unconditional love. And so my mom, you know, she already had three other kids. And, you know, the first two were kind of, you know, they, they pushed the bounds a lot more than my sister. My sister was fairly easy. <laughs> to raise <laughs> quote unquote and so by the time i you know started getting into to my shit because i mean i was fairly rebellious individual um you know i mom always said i, I marched to my own drum say and what i marched to my own drum oh yeah <laughs> and so she would you know i wouldn't go to school because well i just didn't want to or I didn't do my homework because, well, I didn't want to, or I'd, you know, take my BB gun and would shoot things that I probably shouldn't, or, you know, whatever, <laughs> and roll apples under cars as they would drive by because it was hilarious and awesome. And, you know, <laughs> so I, I had kind of a, a loose um, dynamic with, with my mom, she was always working multiple roles. Um, she's been selling Mary Kay and like some of these other like multi-level kind of things. She's done a couple of those. We'd done some together uh, back in the day and she'd usually have two jobs at the same time. And so she was one of those people that's incredibly high energy and would be like constantly being busy and moving and like checking things off lists and like would fall asleep at 2.30 in the morning like this with her head on the couch, you know, going through mail. And so I was like, wow. I don't want to be that, right? I don't want to be constantly going. And so I think I became more introspective. And my dad's very detached. He's loving, but he is an engineer. Things are very black and white. There's not a lot of uh, neutral mind. Actually, I take that back. He actually has a, a large neutral mind. Um, there's one thing in, in yoga today we were focusing on, you know, we have the positive mind, we have the negative mind and the neutral mind and the framing that was used. Feel free and chime in and add anything if, if you'd like or, or just share your perspective. But the positive mind is like, yes, I can do it, right? And so a lot of like the Tony Robbins kind of energy, right? Like I can, like I, I want to, I'm here. Yes, go, go, right? Versus the negative mind, like, oh no, I can't stress, anxiety, ah, it's pressure, ah, right? And the neutral mind's like, just is. I'm here, I'm present. And they all have their different uses, but now that I think about it through that lens, I think my dad actually exhibits a lot of that neutral mind. Interesting. That was some really good answering, my friend. 
Lots of detail. You've definitely thought a lot about this. And would you spend, so did you primarily live with your mom and then would visit your biological dad at times? Or yeah. was it sort of, okay. I didn't ever live with them. At one point I almost did in high school when I wasn't doing so well by, by grade standards. Um, and so I, I decided not to, they gave me the choice, but I did volunteer in the ER. Um, I, I call it forced volunteerism because it was my grades that, that landed me there, but spent a year just, just helping out in the, the ER at Meridian Park Hospital up in Tualatin. And that was where my stepmom worked and it was fascinating. Like it was a, it was a humbling experience. Um, met some really cool people there. Uh, there was this guy, Rob, that, uh, you know, I haven't talked to in 20 years or something, but he still like asks about me and stuff to Linda whenever she sees him. And maybe you talk about, um, like, uh, at that point I was, I was deep into, uh, you know, sustainable energy and alternative fuels and, and different kind of creative concepts. And so one of the things we talked about is creating a giant solenoid, putting like large amounts of trash inside a, a capsule and then blasting it off to another planet or star, you know, to, to actually remove the trash from the planet. <laughs> oh, interesting. Dang, man. So one thing I liked about your description is that you were pointing out directed things about your parents that you liked and you wanted to integrate, and then things you learned indirectly, things that you witnessed and saw them do where you're like, oh, I don't want that for myself. Like your mom's staying super busy. You're able to see and feel what that was like for her and then decide at an early age, okay, this isn't gonna be my path. You know, seeing and feeling how your father who's an engineer chose to view things in a very neutral mind which although very neutral is still a positive asset because it gives you more choice, gives you more awareness. So be able to, you've been able to extract those perspectives and those directions through life at a very early age. That's awesome, man. Thank you. Yeah. What hmm. about you? What about me? You <laughs> Would you like to share any of your story? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, I learned a lot from my father indirectly. Um, I learned, I don't know much about my birth mom. I don't have many memories of her. She passed away when I was really young, when I was four. Mm. Um, but my father, I think my father had a really hard time dealing with reality and he was a creative type. And I think he would constantly live in this bizarre world that he made for himself, that he convinced himself that things were okay in. And he also had a really hard time keeping his word on things. And he was very self-sabotaging. Self All of things of which I'd actually recognized in myself over time. And I saw how I was, in a lot of senses, unconsciously repeating some of his energy dynamics for myself. I pushed myself really hard in school because it's what my mother would have wanted. And it was something that my father didn't pursue. So in a way it was kind of anger driven. <laughs> mm -hmm. At first I was so driven to succeed because I didn't want to be like him. 
at all. I didn't want to live the life that he picked for himself. He chose fear a lot of the time. Given many different instances, there were many, many turning points in his life, chances where he could have pulled out, chances where he could have succeeded, and he buckled every time. And it's been kind of yeah, just about, yeah, numerous times where he, he was an entrepreneur himself, business-minded. Uh, he, he, he was a successful business owner when my mom was alive, and things were going well, but I don't think he recovered from the emotional trauma when she died. And there are also some negative dynamics between him and my grandma, his birth mom, that he never grew past. I see, I see echoes of trauma. You know, there was a chance that he could have been abused himself when he was young. His parents divorced when he was, I think, in middle school, roughly. And he did not have the best childhood himself. And there are articles in psychology that talk about how some people's emotional and psychological development can get stunted based off of trauma early on and they might retain that emotional range or that level of, of psychological maturity if they're not able to find recourse or healing internally and that mm -hmm. continues up until they're all the way throughout their adult life and i see how in a lot of ways he's still emotionally stuck as a teenager in some ways so, uh, yeah, I, you know, as I grow older, I do put my, I try to put myself in his position. You know, I would have been six years old. So I'm, I'm 30 now. And he, by the time he was 30, he would have had a six-year-old and a two-year-old on his hands as a widow. And that's pretty intense. Mm. You know, I think to myself, could I have been, could I have been stable enough to raise my kids and found a way? You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I like I like to I like to think that I would that I would have done whatever it took. Um, he has always had a history of not picking his kids and picking you know two different stepmoms and their wills and their desires. He he always picked that over our over my myself and my sister every time kind of throwing us under the bus. So I can't say if it's wrong or right. You know, it's, it was maybe just his way of, of surviving by picking his spouse that served himself and it gave him enough motivation or will to continue on, to continue living, maybe something. Um, yeah, so I, I'm not gonna lie, dude. It's, it's affected me on a level to where I don't want kids. I'm not saying I wouldn't, I think I would be a good parent if, if the opportunity did just fell on my lap. Consciously, I'm not aiming for children myself, but I, I, I think about myself as a family person, as a father to kids. And although I think I could be a good one, it's inspired me to not take that path for now. For now I feel like I can contribute a lot in other ways. Seth actually talks about this and it's been on my mind for pretty much the past 10 years as I read it, he talked about how children come in many forms and not just physically. As you might know, there are other realities where you have kids and you don't, and they all exist. They all exist with the same validity. And in some realities where you don't have physical kids, your children come through the form of creation, of art or of discovery or of an invention. 
your your life's work can become your child can become your child or your or your children. And listening to my heart and listening to my soul intently, I feel as though that's something I actually would rather pursue. That my children be not actual physical kids, but be my my work, my life's work, whatever that may be. And there are other realities where I, I actually have kids. This is going to sound strange, but anytime I fly in an airplane, something about the altitude puts me in this deep meditative state. And I, I'll have like really strange and powerful emotional experiences on airplanes. Like I'll just be looking out the window and just like letting my mind drift. And then sometimes I can connect to these different thoughts or these different inspirations. And there was one time uh, I was flying back home from a job and all of a sudden i had these deep painful pangs in my chest of like of missing my family mm. like i was missing a wife and a and a child like i like a toddler like in in the emotional part of it was the that the that my family existed and i missed them greatly but i knew obviously i, I wasn't married i didn't have a kid it was a strange moment where I connected to a parallel reality self where I was already married and had a kid. Yeah. Hmm. It's kind of weird, but do you, do you feel like that was triggered because you're in proximity to so many families or do you think that maybe it had to do with your state of, I, I noticed that I have a different style of thinking on planes. Yeah. I, I haven't, I haven't drilled into that, but I just, every time I'm like, wow, I do my best thinking up here and <laughs> Yeah, really. It's strange. I, I think where you are at in terms of height from the sea, I think it can affect your brain waves. Honestly. You know, we are, I'm, try, I'm trying to remember the exact terminology, but there, the, the earth itself does emit frequencies. I'll, I'll even just try to find it right now and see if I can pull it up. There we go. In our data-driven approach to reincarnational beingness and families, and how did that feel for you to to be missing your toddler and your wife in that instance? It was it was crazy. It was, um, I mean, like the emo the emotion is what makes it feel so real, you know. All right, I actually I I was able to find it, so I'll I'll share my browser. 7.83 hertz. The Earth behaves like a gigantic electric circuit and its electromagnetic field surrounds and protects all living things with a natural frequency pulsation of 7.83 hertz. Now, we had talked earlier about um, brainwaves or the frequency of brainwaves. Mm -hmm. And let's see, I still have that picture as well. Um, are you still seeing the web browser? Mm -hmm. Okay, I think I have to switch to this picture now. So this picture that I showed previously, yes. the different brainwave states, the alpha theta range where see created creativity insight. So 7.87, it's, it's closer to theta around alpha. Um, I, I think for some reason being further up in the atmosphere, it, it can affect your brainwave frequency. And it um, lower or higher? It might go higher. Uh, if I, I remember I saw this once before. Ah, yeah. The further away from the earth that you go, 
the higher the frequency range. So up where airplanes would be is actually more towards like 40 to 50 plus hertz. Do you know if the frequency emanates from the center, from the core, and it, it goes does. out? Yeah, Earth is a giant electromagnetic battery, essentially. Um, radiation, no, okay. I may not be able to find it. People are gonna just take my word for it, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a trip. I, I think the altitude affects it. There, there was another interesting study I read. Oh, that makes you disappear completely. Well, let's see if I can turn, I put it to full screen. Okay, I can do full screen, otherwise I disappear. <laughs> um, another interesting study I read was the effects of psychology based off of your location, based off of um, your st the height of the sea level that you were at. So if you were in somewhere in Utah or Colorado, which is, you know, like more than a mile above sea level, your emotional and mental disposition could be different as opposed to if you were in the sea. And why they found this mm -hmm. to be the case, this was actually a study that was run out, run out of Utah, specifically the Mormon Missionary Training Center. So the Mormon, Mission, mm -hmm. uh, Mormon Missionary Training Center in Provo, Utah, it's high enough in elevation. And it's a spot where people from all over the world come to train to be missionaries and then get sent out from after their training to other parts of the world. So you had people from all over the world there and, and they had found that people that stayed there long-term would sometimes, or people that moved to Utah would sometimes feel the need to go on an antidepressant or anti-anxiety medication while really? others that moved, yeah, while others mm -hmm. that moved here did not. And when they did studies, they, they saw that the way that your brain chemistry produces certain neurotransmitters does become affected based off your elevation. In a, I mean, if we were to say positive or negative, that would actually be in a negative manner for feel be. good, like serotonin. Yeah dopamine some people would move out here in this high elevation and thrive some people would actually ditch their their psych meds while others would have to get on them so it wasn't conclusive one way or the other based yeah on it wasn't conclusive that moving to a high elevation was bad but they did say that it was it was somewhat conclusive that depending on just how you're made i don't know if it's it's obviously genetic to some degree or it could be based off of nurture, like how much time you spent in a certain elevation. Um, human biology does change. This is kind of a big tangent, but human biology does change a bit based on elevation. For instance, the, the, the Nepalese people, the ones that are like, you know, like the mountains in Nepal are very high, high elevation. Right. Uh, there are some indigenous people out there that are known for being short and stout, barrel chested. They have a broader chest than the average human being because they need a bigger lung capacity since oxygen is thinner up there. Hmm. So, you know, small examples of how evolution adapts to your elevation. It could be more than just lung capacity and lung size though. It could be your brain chemistry as well. You know, you obviously need oxygen and other you know, and nitrogen, other types of gases in order for your body to just do its thing for you to survive. So depending on how abundant maybe oxygen, nitrogen, or, or other necessary gases are based off that elevation, uh, your, your genetics could play a part. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm part Korean and I have a lot of Scottish and other European blood in me. And most of, so most of that DNA lineage is more closer to the coast, more closer to the sea level. And I honestly, 
noticed quite a shift in my behavior when I lived in Utah compared to being in Portland, which is closer to sea level. And then what elevation were you at in Utah? Uh, let's see. I'm actually curious. Let's see. Um, Utah. It's so like in Tahoe. I mean, I'm at 6,500 feet right now. 6,700 feet right now. It's Utah. Average of Utah is 6,100 feet. And it fluctuates because most of the cities are by mountains. Mm. You know, most of those mountains are pretty damn tall. So that's, that's more than live? a mile. Huh? Where did you live? Which city? Uh, predominantly Utah Valley. Okay. Don't know where that is. Yeah, so Utah Valley is right in the middle of Utah. And it's, it's right next to like a pretty big mountain range. So the highest point in Utah, the highest point in Utah is King's Peak, which is 13.5 thousand feet above sea level. So it can get pretty damn high. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, I honestly moving to Portland and beer being around this oxygen rich forest, as well as being closer to the sea level, mm. I think has made my overall disposition better. I'm, I feel a lot better living in Portland than I did in Utah. So yeah. Really? I, yeah. Even with the, the distinctions in sun? Yeah. I mean, oddly enough, I actually like overcast. <laughs> yeah. I like the gray skies. Fits you well it's, then. Yeah. It's weird. Why um, do you like the gray skies? It's oddly comforting to me. It makes reality seem, like whenever I see like a, a big gray sky where everything's illuminated, but there's no direct point where the sun is, uh, it kind of gives the daylight time a bit of this surreal vibe and I've always enjoyed things that are surreal hmm. in a way it makes me present in a different way how do you define surreal mm, surreal is something it's it's like this it's like this thing that you can't quite pinpoint that doesn't make it seem real I, I guess it's like huh that's a good question I don't, I don't know if I have a definitive answer for that surreal is anything that seems a little bit more than real Something's a little bit off. There's a little bit of a WTF element, a, w, a WTF so vibe. Isn't this what you talk about in, in your dreamscape and astral projection and you know, yeah. lucid dreaming, the idea of daydreaming when you were having that epiphany, you were on a plane, you were looking out the window, your mind was allowed to just be free and going out there. And so could it be that surreal, as you defined it, is actually what you gravitate towards yeah well said for sure i mean portland the land of portals it's this place is <laughs> portland's portland's a trip man there's a strange energy about it and i i think i was drawn to it honestly like a magnet what what actually got you to move ultimately it was a work opportunity mm -hmm. but the work opportunity i think was just a synchronicity that the universe provided so that the ego level would be okay with physically moving there. You know, look, like you said, looking back, you can see how everything makes sense. Well, I don't think I would have made near as much personal development and evolution if I didn't move here. I would have been very stagnant in Utah. That's what I was suffering from. Even though my closest friends and my family were in Utah and I pretty much spent most of my life there, there's a lot of familiarity. I was I was dying on the soul level. Mm. Things became so repetitive. Whoa. Things became so boxed in. There, there didn't seem like any possibility to break out. There didn't seem like any possibility to change. 
I felt on a deeper energetic level that if I wouldn't have made any changes, I couldn't have changed myself. There were, I, I kept getting impulses that I needed to get out. Otherwise, I would have, I would have been a lot more unconscious, for sure. Oh. Yeah, coming here, although it was tough and scary moving out here by myself to mm -hmm. Portland, um, I, I took the necessary actions. I, I tuned into the universe in terms of like signs, synchronicities, everything had constant validation. And, mm -hmm. you know, looking back on my life in the past two years, it, the best way I can explain it is like coming home. There's if there's a deeper familiarity that I'm able to pick up on people that I met that are like my tribe, you know, I, I, I've made friends here that I feel so close to in a short amount of time, this deeper mm -hmm. sense that I've known them before, you know, as weird as it is that first night I did the medicine ceremony in, in that little Portland basement house. I, I had just this beautiful warmth of familiarity of just like remembering that I'm home and I know these people, like just this deep sense of love. It's, yeah, so, so it, it was a, a different strain of love I, I, I hadn't tasted before. Talk about that. Yeah, my, my discovery to love, this honestly the past two years has been a discovery of what love is. Mm. I had never experienced, like I, to kind of be in, to kind of be a bit of a juxtaposition to your upbringing, I didn't really experience unconditional love. Most of my Highly love was, yeah, mine was very conditional. Um, specifically through my stepmoms, both my stepmoms were very uh, off emotionally and mentally. I, I wanna, it's probably just due to their own childhood trauma. They were very off mentally and emotionally and mm -hmm. psychologically and emotionally abusive, but they would give me positive emotions if I had strictly, strictly upheld their expectations of me. And the same would go with my father. My father would only interact with me if there was something that he could get, whether it was advice oh. or someone to talk to or someone to help him with his business endeavors. Um, I went into credit card debt for him. So it was, I, I'm, a, I'm wanted if there was a need. So mm -hmm. I was wanted if I was, there was a need for my father and I was given positive energy if I behaved or performed a certain way. And that was most mm -hmm. of my um, growing up experience. And that was very hardwired. Even meeting new people, it was so conditioned that I thought to myself, I have to prove myself as someone that is worth their attention. So I have to be valuable. And I also have to adjust my behavior and how I approach this person based off of what makes them comfortable. And that was my approach. And then meeting, meeting my tribe here in Portland, I was presented with many opportunities where that, that kind of fell on its face. And I was, mm. given, I was given love in an unconditional sense, like given so freely, and it really put me off guard. It, it, it threw me for a loop. It what was, do they want? Yeah. Why would you do that? No, there, yeah, my first, yeah, for a long time, my thought process was, why does this person, why is this person so warm with me from the get-go? Why mm. is this person so giving and so trusting of me from the very beginning? And I, in my mind, 
I wow. wanted to justify that they saw something in me that I didn't. So I kept taking it as an opportunity. I was so desiring to be in a different place in my life that anytime I had a new stranger here be so warm and open from the beginning, I wanted to prove that reflection of me as valid. I, in a lot of cases, Tyler, I stepped up to become the person that people saw in me. So it was a chance of, it was reinventing. Could you repeat that? You stepped up to be? The person that they saw in me, that I didn't see in myself at the time. Positive mind, negative mind, neutral mind. What framing are you speaking through? It was a mix of the positive and the negative, definitely. So like they're seeing into your, your trusting, your intrinsic value, your soul, who you are, like just, just loving you for, for you. When yeah. Maybe you didn't have permission as, you know, when you were growing up, you didn't have that permission slip to just be loved for whatever. It's like, no, you're yeah. loved because. Yes. And, and instead of accepting their energy at face value, there was a negative judgment upon myself of, well, they don't really know who I am. Like, or am I really deserving of this? You know, or, or is what they see me really who I am? So it presented it presented in a way for me an identity crisis in a good way. I wanted, I wanted to, I wanted change very badly, and I wanted to change myself when I made the decision to move. I wanted to reinvent myself. It's a very cliche trope of going somewhere new, reinvent yourself. So who I had envisioned to be, who I had wanted to be coming out here, the universe presented opportunities where I could validate for myself if that was really who I was. There were, very mm. mo there were moments, there were certain events and moments where I was presented a choice where my consciousness amplified. And when I had this gut feeling of, Lee, this choice that you're about to take is very important. It's going to be a character-defining choice. So think, mm. think, think deeply about what, you're about what your next steps are going to be. And yeah, it's been, um, the past two years has been a redefining of who I am, really, based off of my choices. By, by making conscience choices. And then, and based off of those choices and, and the feelings that I got from those choices, I've been able to revise who I really am, tell my story in a different way. And it's been reinforced over time. It's, it's allowed me to step into this, into this new self. You know, we, we are all mirrors of each other, right? We all offer reflections. Very early on, um, I learned that I had a gift. And that gift is when I meet somebody new, for some reason, I can just see the best of them. Hmm. I can just see like, I can, I, all I see is just the positive aspect of them and, and what, they, what they could be, what they really are, whatever. And there's this intense energy of non-judgment. I, I am very understanding of people after, based off of all the shit that I went through. So I, I, would have, <laughs> I would have people let down their walls around me and become very vulnerable. And then I learned very early on that vulnerability was a key to deeper connection. And what I had struggled to do for myself is to, although I could allow other people that space to be very vulnerable and to connect with me and trust me on that level, I had a hard time doing the opposite. I had a very hard time being trusting vulnerable myself with my own core feelings and selfhood and, and my emotional states. So it, it's been a lot of learning to just let go, you know, cliches that is as well. And, uh, yeah. It sounds as though the contrast, right? If, if we look at, you know, 
the way that you were raised, the, the construct of how love gets shown and the dynamics of relationship gave you real clarity that, oh, oh, it feels super good to not be judged. So I'm just going to not judge people and see what happens. And, <laughs> you know, it's elegant blaming is, is what Tony calls it. Tony Robbins calls it elegant blaming. And it's one of my favorite concepts. Um, you know, Abraham talks about it as the contrast. You know, yes, yes. We, we all go through the contrast, but it's ultimately a gift when we find a meaning. And so, um, you know, that's what learning is, right? Is finding a new meaning through our experiences. And what you just coined so well is, you know, the, the challenges that you had growing up. It was actually, you know, every, every story is two stories. It's either something that you want to learn from and model and emulate or something you want to do the exact opposite or like run away from, right? So I feel like a lot of that away energy that you had growing up and all the, the way that it shaped your soul and gave you the ability to like kind of hone in on, on what your signature frequency is and then allow that to amplify. So when you see somebody else, you're actually listening for their signature frequency. And that's why you're hearing or seeing or experiencing the best part of them because you're looking for that purity and then you add the instruments to it. Go back episode one if you don't know what you're talking about here. And <laughs> it's fantastic, man. It's, it's an incredible, I mean, well, first off, does that, does that resonate? hundred percent. Yes. hundred percent. And something I'd learned earlier that I've been able to experience myself, you know, through these new relationships is the power of being an active mirror, a conscience mirror. If we approach each other as strangers, let's say I never knew you, but let's say we're sitting on a, we're, we're in a forced position. Let's say we both got a single ticket on an airplane and we found out we sat next to each other. It's going to be That'd a long be flight. Awesome <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. In this example, if we didn't know each other, but we sat next to each other and we're, and we're both in a receptive state, we're both feeling talkative. I can look over to you. I can smile. I can, I can see what you have. Maybe, maybe you have an interesting journal you pulled out. Maybe you're wearing some f interesting jewelry. You know, like I'm really, I'm really drinking in how you're presenting yourself and I'm noticing just the micro movements of your face. And I think to myself, this person's very fascinating. And I approach you with that energy of like, hmm, I don't know who you are, stranger, but you got a story to tell. Da, 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 yes. da. Just, just that vibe sets the stage of, oh, this person's putting out this energy where I can step into. And then it's like this, it's like this, it's like this very conscious exchange of how much energy you are willing to reveal. Where, hmm. And, and, and this, this amount of revealing solidifies your... Uh, perceptions of yourself and your perceptions in each other. So you could easily turn around and be like, you know what? Yeah, I, I don't want to talk. You know, turn, put on your headphones. And then you, in that moment, would choose, I'm going to put on the energy of the standoffish, like, don't, don't talk to me, fuck off vibe. And then I would then, like, you would solidify that about you. I would solidify that about myself. And we reinforce an idea of who you are. Mm. But if you engage, with maybe another warm energy, if you pick up on the energy and you engage, and we, and we constantly are intentionally and, gen, and, like, and, um, and gen, genuinely listening to each other, right? Giving each other that stage to where we can kind of express ourselves. Maybe you express a bit of pride 
in who you are because of the work that you've, that you've done. And then I can then take a turn really giving, giving that expression of pride a platform, giving it validity, giving an honest engagement of, wow, like you, you have fucking come a long way. You're a fascinating person. You leave that plane with another reflection of, shit, maybe I am a really fascinating person. And maybe you didn't have that thought about yourself before, vice versa as well. Yeah, so I, I've always tried to give people, you know, in a previous po uh, podcast, we talked about how we're always projecting out what we want to receive to some degree. I was constantly wanting to give others help because really I was wanting, I needed some help, you know? <laughs> yes. And then the ability to not just ask, but receive that help as well. Like really like intentionally receiving that help. Um, putting out, putting out my best foot and then having others show me through their responses and through the reception of Lee, this is what I see you as. And me thinking to myself, is that who I really am? Maybe not right now, but it's who I want to be. So mm -hmm. in the present, in the present, I can make the choice of being that person. And even if I'm not convinced right now, if I do it enough, I will be convinced. Mm. That's kind of the approach I took is just, yeah, you know, taking- When did you take, begin that? How old were you when you consciously, because you just said very succinctly that, energy exchange and that's rapport right trust plus comfort it's rapport and so what you're doing is is by by my interpretation is you've studied how to create trust and comfort and then accelerated it by finding what is it that i want to focus on in this person's consciousness that i believe may be undervalued that i see clearly that is a huge point of value and that's the platform you described and then it, it just raises vibrations. It feels good. Like, because yes. there's, you know, our probability cone and we all fit inside of these different probabilities. And so your impact has a direct relationship to what probability that somebody goes, you know, are they going more towards the negative mind, more towards the positive mind, more towards yeah. the neutral mind? Are they being uh, expansive and creative? Or are they being uh, smaller? Are they being, you know, oh, because judgment shrinks, right? It says you must fit into my blueprint. But it, this expansive platform, and, you know, when did this start to crystallize for you? I guess there was a moment when I was sort of on my own, 18 or 19, and I had accepted what the world told me that I was an adult. There was a moment where I had to decide for myself, what is an adult? mean and i say that in the sense of what do i want my future self to be like who do, who do i want to be as a person i don't remember the psychologist's name but there's a psychologist who kind of coined this 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 flow of life where there's these different stages and it's the stages it's the ages between 18 and 23 24 that five to six year period where most people sort of define they ask themselves who they are they define from that point forward like what kind of a person they want to be. So it was roughly around that age I started questioning um, what I wanted to be. And it was in that age range where I knew what I wanted to be, but I didn't know if I believed it. <laughs> I didn't know if I trusted it. I didn't know what actions I had to take or what I had to do to be perceived. So, and there, there was an evolution of that. You know, I, th there was just a very base logical level where if I just did A and a plus B, then of course I would get C. 
But as I matured, I started to understand the emotional part of it too. Mm -hmm. um, it had to feel right. It didn't have to just make sense, but it also had to feel right as well. And then being able to tune into both. Did so, you, which, which way did you lean most prior to 18 to that 24 range? Did you lean more towards the analytical? Did 100%. Lean... Okay. Yeah, I had to be very, analytical was the path that I had to take for survival. Hmm. Um, yeah, so the analytical side that allowed me to get to where I was. Is there a relationship between analytical and survival? It's a relationship between analytical and survival. I would think so, definitely, for sure. Could they be like a similar frequency? Because, you know, analytical could mm. also be, um, I mean, I guess analytical is kind of, it is, it is defining, it's confining, it's constraints, it's getting rid of the fluff versus creativity, expansion, right? Possibility is this like endless nebulous, you know, space. Yeah. But, you know, that the analytical has drawn it down. So I wonder, is, do you, do you think, that, does that feel right? Like there's a, a relationship to the more there, analytical? The yeah, there, the there is. And I, I, I like how you put it because that is, that's definitely one way that that acts out. Being purely analytical can be restrictive for sure. Especially in the sense of if you are trying to get to an endpoint, and that's how I did lead my life because I understood pain. I understood pain very well, and I understood that there are ways to achieve that pain. There are ways to avoid that avoid that pain. So, like so, like any any normal person, I would consciously take steps to avoid pain, right? No. Um, yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, I did. I, I swung like a pendulum. If we were to make that, if we were to if we were make the distinction that being uh, very analytical was on the polar opposite spectrum of just being purely feeling, and as you define like unlimited creativity, I did experience. Pendul pendulum swings of that. There would, be, there would be moments where I would just throw away my logic and be purely feeling based. But even then I would experience inconsistency. Mm -hmm. And I would constantly, I would have to tap in to what I felt was, um, I, I guess my relationship with both have evolved and changed where I, I really, I do need a harmony of both. We, we are creatures of emotion emotion, emotion, energy in motion, motivation. It's the whole reason why we're alive. But the fact that we are also in a world of limitation, in a world of consequences, being able to use your rationality and your analytical mind can serve a benefit. It's, it's about that harmonization and that integration, utilizing both. When you mm -hmm. are using your analytical mind in harmony with your emotions, then that's when exponential creativity and magic and structure can happen. Before I was experiencing the, the old trope of the best laid plans or not, I, I'm gonna butcher that saying, but it's basically like you can make this, the, grand, the grandest plans that you want, but life can always throw a wrench in your way. And, and I was experiencing that. I would actually have these like long-term schemes and plans and they would always fall apart. Light, hmm life would just happen. I like get thrown a curveball, And that's because in the past, I didn't, I didn't create an analytical pathway from my heart. 
I was disconnected from how I felt about it. Whoa. Yeah. You didn't create an analytical pathway for your heart? Yeah, in the sense that I would do something because logically it made sense, like more security, more financial benefit, more safety, um, getting something I really wanted in the end, even though at present it didn't feel good. Like working, I used to work as a tech installing security systems and camera systems all over the US made a lot of money. Like analytically, it made sense to me. But in the actual act itself, I despised it. Hmm. Something like that. And that's something that everyone does, right? A lot of like 80, what's the statistic? Like 80-ish percent of people, at least in America, work some job they don't like. Kind of a depressing reality for some people, right? Because we all have to quote unquote survive. But as I started to just open up myself to more questioning and being honest with myself and realizing oh, um, how I spend my life is important, right? How I make my memories is important. Like, I don't want to have a whole lifetime of memories where I'm just not happy. I want to feel happy. I want to listen to my heart. But mm. I also am engaged in a very objective, contrast-filled reality. I am not uh, purely, purely in a reality of my own because that is what I chose. I chose to be in this reality where I am meant to be interactive. I am meant to be social. I am meant to discover who I am through other people and their reflections. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find out who I am or if not find out, remember who I am. Mm. There was this beautiful quote that my friends, Rachel, you know her. Oh, she mm-hmm. would bleep out her name. Um, I'll, I'll pull it up and I'll share it. It's, it's very apropos about how spirituality and the subjective reality tie in together by Nassim Haramin. I don't know who that is. I'll look him up if you'd like, but beautiful quote from him. There is a concept that a person can create their own reality. This concept is only partially correct because it is a generally discussed in a one-way mirror. An example, a person sending a message to the field with a request slash intention slash prayer desiring an outcome. This is only half of the loop. The wave you're sending is the feed forward part of the loop. You need to realize that the wave coming back is the feedback, which is the rest of the universe creating its reality and responding to you. The universe, aka the Planck field or the divine, interacts with the rest of humanity and your creation and the universe gives you a result that is a combination of everyone's feed forward waves. If a person could create a reality exactly the way they wanted, a few things would happen. One, you'd be the only one in it because everybody else would be creating their own. And it would be very lonely. Two, you'd also be bored within seconds since you had everything you'd wanted. What happens is that you put your intention out into the field and you stay open to what comes back, realizing it's going to get modified for the highest evolution of the whole. This unexpected feedback gives you empathy for yourself and others. You might not get exactly what you expected, but now you're learning from the experience. The totality of everyone's learning is how the universe learns about itself. Really interesting perspective. And it feels right. It feels right because if we, if we were in our own purely created reality, then we'd be living in a constant lucid dream or a constant outer projection on our higher dimension where you got everything that you imagined all the time. And as Abraham Hicks would define, that's not the leading edge. It's not where the unexpected can happen. You know, Bashar has even mentioned that part of what makes this reality so engaging. And Seth has talked about this too, is that there's a slight gambling element to it. There's Mm. a slight level of unexpectedness. Mm. 
the energy and the events that you manifest or desire strongly can happen, but the way in which they can, that is the uncontrollable, that is the quote unquote uncontrollable element, the surprise. That's what makes physical reality so spicy. That being said, we have many examples in life of individuals that we resonate towards. For you, easily Tony Robbins. He has created and defined a path for himself that has inspired many others. It's created its own type of energy dynamic, an own philosophy, a way of life, a type of social engineering in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. You all have your own culture. Tony Robbins has created his own microculture, a culture being a set of definitions and, and ways of behavior that everybody has subscribed to because, it, it, because it, 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 it hits people on different levels, such as it makes sense and it feels good. Right. But it's something... But it's something he had to forge. He wasn't born with that. He had to build it up. Totally. And we see people like that and we're like, oh, we can use our analytical mind to build something for us that feels damn good. Yeah. Amen. If someone like Tony Robbins can against all odds, because like, like there's so many variables, right? There's so many different ways that his life could have gone, but that's what makes his journey so goddamn exciting and his story so cool is because against the odds, against the gamble that is physical reality, that there's a demonstration, there's a lesson to how you can manif manifest something as big and as powerful as what he's created if you have the right formula. And that, but, if, but I'm sure you've learned that formula is not a one size fits all. You, you have to modify it a bit to fit yourself in some cases. You know, reading the Seth material, listening to Abraham Hicks, listening to Bashar, you are, you are faced with questions still of, is this what I really believe in? Can I believe that this works for me? Because they're all invisible sets of rules, right? There's nothing right. concrete about any of this. You have to do your own sort of um, scientific method. If I do this, does it work? Do I get the result that I want? You keep doing it, you keep doing it until you find that system, right? Until you find it's that. It's really interesting how you define that. Um, Seth just talked about it in, uh, in the nature of personal reality. I just finished that book. Yeah. Um, hell yeah, dude. Yeah. It took a while. <laughs> Thick book. It is. It is. And they talk about how we have all these different verticals, you know, our science and we have physicists and then we have biologists and then we have, like fill in, fill in the blank and they're all looking at things and interpreting through their own lens. But you know, the, the point that Seth had is it's all there. Everything interrelates with everything else. And so we might have a filter or a lens that we're looking through at that particular, um, you know, if we're looking at science, for example, that, well, that's the ability to have a predictable outcome, right? So we're just defining what already exists and we, we create formulas or strategies or structures so that we can then relay that to other people and be like, oh, you, you always get that outcome. And it's science, it's real. But anything that's real is just, it's a belief system that it's real. And I think you just define that so well, like the, you know, again with Tony to talk about that, he says there's the science of achievement, it's formulaic, it's mechanical, it's left brain, right? And then there's the art of fulfillment. And mm. The example he always uses is Robin Williams. My goodness, by every standard, I mean, 
the guy wanted to have the most popular TV show and did it, right? He wanted to win a Academy Award and an Oscar and he did it. And then he wanted to do it for not being funny, which is the thing he was really good at. And he did it and all Hello, this stuff. Good morning, Vietnam. There you go. See, I'm not even like, I'm not too familiar, but as an example, as an archetype, he touched millions and millions of people, but yet he wasn't feeling something in here he wasn't giving to himself. Maybe that was the thing. Maybe he was so um, challenged by like how you were describing how you grew up and like the conditional love element. Well, maybe he wanted to laugh so much and it, it was never satiated inside of him, but he was able to do it for other people. Like that, that might've been why he had that drive and that spark and that desire, but you know, to not feel fulfillment from it, to not live long and prosper right? It's not just live long. Living long sucks if you're not prospering, if you're not enjoying it, like <laughs> no one wants to do that, right? Like there's, ah, there's, there's such creativity in, in this life that we get to live. And yet there's such contrast. That's why there's creativity. Like we have to know what we don't want to know what we do want, you know? Value fulfillment. That's a thing that Seth talks about over and over again, honestly, as, as the raison d'etre, the reason to live is value fulfillment. I, I think that's kind of cool. I didn't know much about Tony Robbins philosophy, but hearing about how there's that, the art of fulfillment, yes. Fulfillment is, it's an emotion. Yes. And it's a very complex and abstract emotion, but the feeling of it is when you achieve a level of fulfillment, that's based purely out of integrity, right? Because you, you, you have to give your permission to feel fulfilled whatever endeavor you're taking upon. It's, it's incredible. It's, it's a type of peace and connectedness that can't be achieved without some level of work, without some level of engagement. And that plateau, that, that level does differ from person to person. It's just as unique as our DNA. Some people can become very fulfilled living a very simple life, being a shoe cobbler and raising a family and doing a damn good job at both can be very fulfilling. While others, such as Robin Williams, has to just express himself on every platform possible to, to, to show himself that he is what he thought he would be, what he, what he felt he should be, this beloved to entertainer and this very hilarious soul a light in the world then why would he take his life well obviously we don't know him we don't know him directly so we can't give a definitive answer when i when that first happened i had read that he was facing um a lot of issues both in his health he, his health was degrading at a pretty rapid rate. Uh, I think he had, um, he was starting to develop the same thing that Michael J. Fox had. What's it, what's that? What is that? Um, is that Parkinson's? Parkinson's. Yeah. Like he was losing the ability to control his limbs a little bit. Mm. And he was also facing um, some, some pretty bad debt and he was not getting the same roles. So his quality of life had fallen down. Uh, this is gonna this is gonna be a little tinfoil hatty. I'm not saying this is why he died, but there's this thing about celebrities that have died in the manner that he did, which is hanging from a doorknob. Uh, 
if you, <laughs> I I had learned I had heard from different from different sources, the validity of which I don't know if this is true or not. But famous pe people of renown that die through hanging themselves off the doorknob, it's it's a it's a symbolic thing, basically saying that this person has betrayed an organization. Yeah, so like the cabal, we talked in depth about if there was a cabal or if there was a dark side to the entertainment industry or Hollywood. Um, you know, it is said that Hollywood is very deeply tied to the CIA and the Pentagon and the government and all that jazz. And there, there's that, that's going to be another episode, the layers of what that might be. But some say that he was suicided. It's a, it's a, it's a colloquial term. Yeah, suicided. Someone that's been killed but made to look like a suicide. There are people that think that he could have been suicided because he was, he was about to give out some insider information. Yeah. Yeah, but good question. Why did he kill himself if he did? We won't know for sure because we don't know him. Don't know his family. And to a large degree, it's like, does it matter? Does it actually matter? Because if we all have our own journey and our own blueprints, we can look for the formulas. We can look for the reflections of what we see in ourselves, but his own motivations are his own motivations. Yeah. And even Seth says that we all choose our death one way or another. Seth does make mention that every death is a suicide whether it appears natural or not. Whoa. <laughs> okay, interesting. Um, if that's the case, then how much of our unconscious thoughts are running that show? I think the unconscious thoughts do interact with the higher self. The point of you that is the unconscious creator, the feedback of the reality generation, I think for some people, if their emotions are strong enough, if their thoughts are strong enough, can manifest their own means to an end. If people want to kill themselves, they'll kill themselves one way or another. And there have been instances, and even Seth gives this example too, of somebody who wants to die really bad, but doesn't have the courage to do a physical act, might die in an accident. Hmm. A guy walking home from work can have something fall on his head from an apartment several stories above, like maybe AC unit falls out and crushes them. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I'm on the magical approach now. So the way it works is Audible only has three of Jane's books. So it has Seth Speaks, it has The Nature of Personal Reality, and then they go from 1973 to 1980. And the magical approach is the one that I'm on. So the other two are 22 hour books. You know, a lot of it's that core material. And, um, you know, what happens in between is Jane passes. Yeah. So Robert at the beginning is like, I get everything through Seth's perspective that we're living in this multidimensional reality that exists simultaneously and that we're all just extensions of that larger soul. And so going in and out of these physical vessels, you know, not a big deal. Um, <laughs> Um, but he was still crying every day yeah. for over a year. Like, so did, you know, did Jane choose that? Does the person that's seven years old that, you know, passes, do they choose that? Is, they do. Like, of course. Yeah. Jane knew that her lifestyle choices, such as smoking and drinking all the time, would deteriorate her quality of health. Like she... 
I, you know, reading all of her books, like she suffers from arthritis and her arthritis gets increasingly bad. And arthritis is agitated by acidic habits like drinking coffee and alcohol and smoking cigarettes. Those things increase the acidity and increase the inflammation in the body, which in turn amp up the arthritic self. Um, Seth does talk about how it is a genetic thing that she inherited from her feminine lineage and it was in her life for a reason. And she had to find ways to interact with that pain, interact with that with that arthritis to make her life creative in a sense. And I'm not saying that's what ended up taking her out, but her lifestyle in general kind of took her out. And Robert's mourning, you know, just kind of a demonstration of his love for her. And any type of mourning that we have, um, you know, Bashar says this very succinctly, is we're not really mourning the person that has passed away. We're mourning that we cannot be with them mm -hmm. in the present. Or we're, we're sort of mourning that we're not able to, yeah. So Robert was crying because obviously he loved Jane, but it was trippy. I, I feel for Robert in the last legs of his life. But knowing everything that he had experienced, went through, through Jane and through the Seth series, yeah, his, his physical analytical mind understood what was happening. But living a physical life where you have emotions and you have limited lifespan, he was just having a human moment, experiencing, mm. experiencing what it meant to be human. Mm. Right? Because if, if, if things last forever, they're not, they're not valuable. It's that limited thing that gives them that. Yeah, so the mourning is a very beautiful way of expressing the briefness of that person's life, of the briefness of her life and her work. Hmm. Which is your favorite book? Is it The Dreams? Uh, I do love that book a lot, but I would have to say, um, oh my God, I, I'm not going to turn to my bookshelf because it's behind my sheet. I'm just going to pick up, it's got a funky title and it's a two-part Seth series. Uh do you have all of these? The things? unknown reality. The unknown uh, reality. I did. I did, but I've I've lent some out, and I had to leave some behind when I when I was moving, so I don't have all of them anymore. But I did own all the physical books at one point. The unknown reality, volume one and volume two. That is, uh, it goes really deep into the the non physical, non conscious parts. Um, it's very fascinating. A lot, a lot of it's abstract. And then another really good one is the Oversoul Seven trilogy. And that's actually by Jane, right? Yeah, that's by Jane. And it's written to present itself as it's, it's got the concepts of the Seth series embedded, but it's not a dial. It's not the typical book of a dialogue between Robert, Jane, and Seth. Instead, it's written from the perspective of an entity called Oversoul 7. So it's like a, a fictional book written as a fictional story. It's uh, written from the perspective of this being called Oversoul 7. And Oversoul is a soul, it's a pupil that is engaging with a higher entity that's also managing different incarnations that it pops in and out of. So it's kind of written from the perspective of the Oversoul. It's kind of cool. You get to kind of see through Jane's writing, the thoughts and the feelings and the processes that the soul goes through in managing different incarnations at the same time. Wow. Yeah, so you, you can see how it pops in and out of all these incarnations and what it gleans off of it and then how it develops and evolves over time. So, wow. yeah, if there's never an audio book of it, check it out. Uh, if you ever have the time to sit down and read a book, 
out of because obviously there's a lot of books. Like I'm looking at this list of books, and there there is let's see, there's 25 different books. Yeah, there's a lot of material. Not all of it is pure pure Seth material. Some of it is um, spinoffs of Jane and Robert's personal work that, that integrate maybe Seth's philosophy. But yeah, mm. there's at least 20 books. Um, but they're all fascinating. So much to learn, so much to discover, so much yeah. that just lives beneath the surface each and every day, all the time. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's easy to get lost in the complexity, but it's like that breath of the in and out, right? You, you go, you breathe into the complexity, then you exhale into the simplicity and find that link in between, the space in between and seeing how it all does connect. It's fun to expand. Yeah, I, you know, for our listeners out there, um, there is something magical about how this reality works. And if you are willing to do the searching, willing to do your own scientific method testing, putting yourself out there, you can establish some system that works. You can use the analytical and your feeling part, the heart to interact with the reality, to, to validate what you think it could be. It's, it's fascinating. It gets more and more fascinating and exciting the more you dive into it. Hmm. That, that's just me and my own motivation. Maybe everyone's gonna have their own motivations, but I, yeah, it, it's, it's my own personal evolution has been believing in the magic and then not believing in the magic and then for sure believing in magic, like 100% now. <laughs> something mysterious, something bizarre that we can't explain. Isn't that fun? It's a lot Every, of yeah. Everything's magic. Everything. How do we have a heart beating? How do animals fly in synchronicity? Uh, or birds? How do birds fly in synchronicity? You know? Yeah. How, how do you, dolphins, how can they communicate so far away? How can a shark smell blood miles away? Sense yeah. blood. One of my best friends who's very scientific minded, very analytical, he truly believes that like, he refuses to believe in magic. It's all very black and white to him. And I have to understand and respect that that's a valid view. That mm. the earth and all of its mystery and all this crazy life and how earth is in this perfect Goldilocks zone could have been just some insane accident. As big as this universe is. And then cautiousness just suddenly appears. Yeah, maybe. But... Uh, I think if you keep digging, you'll see that it's, it's fucking impossible that this was an accident. There's just no way, mathematically. It's just, it's an insane statistic. But yeah, teach their own. Yeah, <sighs> the statistics are uh, interpretations of whatever equation, whatever it is, whatever you want the data to show, you can find it. Seek and you shall find. You know, this is our law of attraction. Um, being people that are uh, literally present in space time right now or time space, however you want to define it. I'm here, you know, in the stars and looking down at earth. You're there in the center of a galaxy. And <laughs> what is this? Your background. I have no clue. It's some, it's, it's a galaxy, but the object that's in it, it looks like a super elongated star tetrahedron. I don't know. But it looks cool. That's the only reason why I picked it. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. 
Well, brother, this is uh, this has been a great chat. Oh my goodness! Thank yeah, you. Yeah, interesting. A bit more impromptu, but yeah, a great discussion. A discussion about new beginnings. Discussion about how the future is constituted a bit by our past and how we just how we decide to interpret that. What kind of energy dynamics from your absorption of your of your childhood are you going to mm. integrate or push out or, or you know it, yeah how how you raise your child it's it's going to be a fun adventure but with how conscious you are i'm excited for the child ah thanks man yeah dude. me too <laughs> yeah magic continues yes i mean that by itself a new life like life is still miraculous how conscious how complex consciousness comes from two cells a sperm and an egg zygote that's magic it is wow Tell all right Andy. brother well thank you so much i appreciate this it's been tremendous um and i look forward to the next the next journey next tuesday i'm excited to see you in person give you a hug and do this next episode in person yes brother sounds great awesome have a good rest of your night you too man Take care, Take brother. Take it easy.